Welcome to the EMSO Talks podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EMSO Talks podcast. I'm Don Lucardi, Head of Investor Relations here at EMSO, and today I'm joined by Patrick Esteruelis, our Head of Research. Hi, Patrick. How are you today? Hi, Don. Pleasure to be here. So, Patrick, we're going to talk about China today. China, China, China. There's been a lot in the news over the last few weeks and months about China and the reopening story there. And it would be great to get some info from you in a little bit more detail uh, about that. But before we dive in, let's review what happened in China in 2022. It was a pretty disappointing year for the Chinese economy and economic growth. So what are your thoughts on China and what happened in 2022? 2022 was uh, extremely disappointing, um, to say the least. Um, at the beginning of the year, you know, most analysts uh, assumed that uh, Beijing would deliver the uh, GDP growth target that they had stated um, of around 5.5% uh, for the year. Um, and instead, uh, you know, China just seemed to um, run into one uh, headwind after another, uh, most of them of their own making. Um, two in particular uh, stuck out. Uh, the first, of course, uh, was the uh, government's decision to uh, significantly tighten the screws uh, on uh, property developers uh, in an effort, I mean, to try and deflate uh, a bubble that had been threatening to grow out of control. Um, you know, that, of course, uh, you know, resulted in a, a collapse of uh, property sector developers, you know, particularly non-state-owned ones, um, and uh, and resulted in a collapse in overall, uh, you know, home sales and property construction activity, which, of course, has been one of the main engines of growth in China over the course of the last decade. The uh, second headwind, also of their own making, uh, was their uh, decision to um, you know, continue to implement draconian COVID lockdowns uh, at a time when much of the rest of the world was, in fact, already fully on the way to open up, uh, in large part uh, you know, thanks to the fact that um, uh, whereas uh, most countries around the world uh, you know, had already developed uh, extremely effective uh, mRNA vaccines uh, that uh, you know, helped provide a very strong layer of protection, uh, China, of course, uh, insisted on uh, you know homegrown vaccines uh, with a much lower effectiveness track record, uh, and which uh, you know I think was one of the reasons why uh, they had been extremely hesitant uh, to open up. By June of last year, um, I think the reality had already begun to sink in. Um, the official sector gave up its 5.5 percent target. Um, at the time, you know there were reports that. Um, uh, the Chinese leadership was already urging local bureaucrats to try and rush out pro-growth measures to prevent a second quarter economic contraction, let alone uh, you know, keep uh, the growth target that they had set out, but um, it was already too late. Great. So at some point last year, probably around November of 2022, that seemed to re represent basically an inflection point for the Chinese economy and for policy. What happened that was so, so significant to cause this turnaround in economic sentiment within China? In November was uh, uh, a dramatic turning point uh, for uh, you know China's uh, policy course, uh, and, and as a result, um, uh, you know the course for both growth and, and overall asset performance. Um, now, since early November, uh, you know we have had what I think could best be characterized as a triple policy pivot, um, and we're not talking ice skating here, folks. Um, the first policy pivot uh, was uh, a pivot on health policy, uh, away from uh, a zero COVID policy that relied on you know, centralized um, um, you know, quarantining 
to China effectively embracing the Swedish model and just ripping off the Band-Aid um, and letting all the cards fall where they may. Um, why did they do that? Um, because it was becoming increasingly unaffordable to maintain a zero COVID policy. Uh, and because, as we saw through October and November, uh, there it was bubbling social unrest right, uh, at the prospect of uh, you know having to endure just month in, month out of uh, extremely strict lockdown policies uh, as uh, you know, much of the Chinese population saw the rest of the world effectively move on. Um, the uh, second policy pivot uh, was uh, on economic policy. Um, at the uh, Central Economic World Conference uh, in uh, December, uh, we saw uh, a clear change in guidelines uh, around economic policy, moving away from uh, an insistence on so-called common prosperity, uh, you know, above all else, to a reprioritization of uh, economic growth and economic stability above all else uh, for 2023. Uh, this was, of course, supplemented by uh, you know a number of uh, demand-boosting measures, um, you know, and uh, including, in fact, uh, in the uh, property sector, where the Chinese authorities seem now to be, you know, keen on, at the very least, arresting the bleeding. Right? I mean, I'm providing, uh, you know, some modicum, uh, a level of stability. And the third policy pivot, which I think has been less talked about, actually, uh, was on foreign policy. Um, you know, the Chinese leadership has been, you know, pursuing a very uh, aggressive form of what they call wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, you know, setting a very confrontational stance, uh, you know, against uh, the U.S., against Europe, as well as uh, you know, bilateral trade partners that they felt slighted by. Um, you know, everybody remembers. I mean, their decision to, for instance, ban all coal exports from Australia, right, which was one of the main suppliers of um, uh, what is actually a, a very important, you know, fuel and energy source. Um, and uh, over the course of the last couple of months, I mean, we've seen them really bring down the temperature. Uh, you know, we saw a bilateral summit between. Uh, uh, President Xi and, and President Biden uh, in uh, Bali uh, in November, which uh, really, I think, set the table for, uh, you know, not so much, uh, uh, you know, constructive engagement, you know, as uh, as much as, you know, an effort, I mean, to try and, you know, simmer down tensions uh, and not allow, uh, you know, foreign policy, I mean, to be an obstacle to the sort of growth recovery that I think China wants to secure this year. Thanks, Patrick. Um, so, with those changes in government in the government's economic policies, what is your expectation for Chinese growth this year? And what parts of the Chinese economy do you think will be the primary drivers of that recovery? So we have seen consensus economic forecasts um, uh, move up quite a bit uh, you know, since November as a result of these uh, you know, multiple policy pivots we've seen from a low of 4.5, uh, 4.75%. Uh, at the end of Q3 to 5.1% um, uh, for 2023 uh, over the course of the uh, you know, last several weeks. Forecasts range anywhere between a low of 4% to a high of uh, you know, 6, 6.25%. Uh, you know, we think forecasts are, are probably going to prove correct, um, but um, uh, where we differ a little bit from consensus is over the composition of that growth, which of course has implications for differentiated asset performance. Uh, we think growth is going to be much more heavily tilted towards consumption uh, and less reliant on infrastructure and investment. Um, and we also think that growth is going to be much more front-loaded than the market is expecting. Uh, you know, the market has been, uh, uh, you know, long talking about you know the possibility of uh, uh, the beginning of uh, recovery and pent-up demand from China in Q2, when in fact we already think it's uh, already in the works. 
Um, if we focus on uh, consumption, which we think is going to be the main engine of growth, um, you know, we think China is, you know, going to uh, mirror uh, the the post-pandemic recovery that we have seen through much of the developed and emerging world, where, um, you know, as soon as controls were lifted, I mean, we saw, you know, what what can you know best be described as a, as a revenge consumption, right? Uh, you know, with uh, you know consumers basically tapping into their excess savings. Um, you know, and deciding to front load, uh, you know, everything that they had effectively, uh, you know, parked to the side, right? I mean, for uh, uh, much of the time that they were um, under lockdown. Um, we've, in fact, already have seen, you know, a significant consumption rebound during the Lunar New Year holiday, uh, which, uh, you know, started uh, earlier this year, uh, which suggests that, you know, the domestic demand recovery has actually started even sooner than I think anyone expected. Um We've seen a significant increase in domestic travel and, and tourism, uh, which um, you know indicates that the service sector has uh, you know already started to turn around. Cross-border trips, you know, during the uh, seven-day Lunar New Year holiday, have recovered to you know around 25% of of pre-pandemic Lunar New Year levels, which is a, a remarkable pickup, given that it was only weeks after China had scrapped the inbound quarantine requirement uh, um, in early January, uh, and we have even seen. You know, cinema box office revenues uh, uh, explode, right? I mean, and, uh, uh, we, and and are currently above, you know, the 2017, 2019 average. I mean, we suggest that people are, again, very, very comfortable uh, being in close contact with one another. How much more of a consumption rebound we're likely to see is really going to come down uh, to how big uh, you think uh, China's excess savings are uh, and how far you think Chinese consumers are willing to draw them down. Right. Um, excess savings, you know, have increased in China during these years in lockdown, as they did, you know, much everywhere else in the world. Um, and there were, you know, three drivers, uh, you know, behind this uh, uh, increase in excess savings. The first, of course, is, you know, consumers just cutting back on spending. Uh, the second uh, is, uh, you know, home buyers deciding to, you know, pull back, um, you know, home purchase decisions and, uh, you know, mortgage decisions uh, in the middle of a massive property market downturn. And the third, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, Chinese consumers redeeming from wealth management products, right? I mean, as well as other investments. Um, uh, we're not going to see a wind down, obviously, of all these excess savings, not least because the unemployment rate in China is still high and uh, uh, and the property sector, you know, doesn't invite any optimism. Um, but I do think we will see, uh, you know, a drawdown of at least a fraction of these savings. Um, there is a wide range out there uh, of estimates of where these excess savings might be from a low of Four trillion, you know, renminbi, which is equivalent to about three and a half percent of GDP, to as much as twelve trillion renminbi, which is equivalent to around ten percent of GDP. Even if we only believe, uh, you know, the lower, you know, uh, bound of of that range, uh, you know, that that should still translate into uh, a significant consumption boost. We are, on the other hand, moving away from consumption, less optimistic around some of the other engines of growth uh, that have supported Chinese growth in the past. Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we think investment is, is going to provide a very modest uh, boost to growth uh, this year. Um, why? Uh, because um, we think that, uh, you know, much of the property downturn, unfortunately, uh, is is already, you know, kind of like baked in, right? I mean, for uh, much of this year. Uh, new construction starts, uh, which typically are a leading indicator of real estate activity, um, you know, have fallen by, you know, anywhere between 35 to 50%. Right. I mean, over the course of the second half of last year, which means that this downturn is already hardwired right into the first half 
of this year. And this, of course, has important spillover effects, right? Um, local governments um, are under fiscal pressure due to declining revenue from land sales, which, of course, are connected to you know the overall property cycle. And as a result, local government financing vehicles uh, are you know unlikely to be in a position uh, you know to provide uh, you know significant fiscal and uh, investment stimulus. Finally, uh, you know we think that uh, net exports, which of course were a very important growth driver for China during the pandemic, as consumption collapsed, imports collapsed, uh, and uh, with much of the you know world reopening, right? I mean, you know, China saw a great deal of demand, right? I mean, for many of the goods that it's selling, should actually be a drag this year, right? I mean, with um, China opening up, imports picking up, um, and and the rest of the globe now, of course, you know, moving away from the post-pandemic sugar high, right? Uh, and uh, and demanding less, you know, in the way of Chinese goods export. Thanks, Patrick. That's interesting. I mean, I think you know, uh, we're talking a little. You're talking about the Chinese economy itself and consumption, uh, and that coming back online. But tell me, could you explain to us, I guess, what what the impact this this impact locally in China is going to have on the global growth uh, and inflation this year? What what impact that will have on, on on countries outside of China and the rest of emerging markets? Yeah, that's the uh, million-dollar question right now um, for uh, you know much of the globe, but particularly many of the emerging market countries that we follow, right? I mean, and that have developed very close, um, you know, direct trade linkages, uh, you know, to China and uh, and rely on you know China's growth cycle, you know, to support their own. Um, you know, there are roughly uh, you know three uh, direct channels uh, through which we think China's reopening is likely to impact global growth. Um, the first, of course, as we said earlier. Uh, is increased domestic demand in China, that should boost you know goods exports from uh, other economies. Um, you know the two regions that are uh, likely to benefit the most, of course, are you know Asia Pacific economies, uh, you know close to China, you know as well as Latin American economies. Um, you know that uh, export uh, many of the commodities. I mean that China you know traditionally consumes and that they have of course uh, you know been holding back on. Right. I mean for much of the uh, last year, uh, the second. Uh, channel through which China's reopening is likely to impact global growth is uh, a recovering demand for foreign services, right? I mean, particularly uh, international travel, which we think uh, you know should provide a uh, a modest boost to global growth um, and uh, and a particularly strong boost, uh, you know, to uh, you know, tourism economies uh, that are heavily reliant on uh, you know Chinese tourists as a proportion of the overall tourism revenues, right? Um, you know, Thailand, of course. You know, it's often talked about as uh, as a major direct beneficiary. Um, and the third channel uh, is uh, you know through uh, higher oil demand, right? Um, uh, you know, Chinese uh, you know energy demand um, has been um, uh, you know significantly repressed over much of uh, you know last year. Um, uh, you know, we believe that um, this uh, you know post pandemic um, uh, reopening uh, is is likely to uh, you know increase uh, Chinese. Uh, and demand for crude uh, by you know somewhere in the order of one million barrels per day, uh, you know which um, you know we think should um, uh, you know benefit uh, and boost you know overall oil prices and and benefit uh, you know oil exporters of course I mean who will uh, you know see both uh, an oil price and, and we think a, a volume effect as a result of that. Um, on the other hand, when you look at the uh, flip side of that coin, uh, you know China's reopening should probably also. Uh, you know, result in a boost of global inflation. Now, the only real question, of course, being just how much of a boost are we likely to see? We think it's going to be on the modest side. Um, you know, supply improvements from China's reopening, on the one hand, should actually lower inflation, right? 
um, you know, as uh, you know, bottlenecks which have been easing consistently over the course of the second half of last year, you know, continue to ease. Um, but on the other hand, you know, as um, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, China's uh, you know demand for commodities and in particular energy, uh, you know, we think uh, you know should push overall headline inflation uh, higher. Um, although we think prices are you know going to be well below you know the peaks that we saw last year. Uh, on the back of the uh, you know Russian uh, Ukrainian war. Okay, so in terms of then, let's put chart put this in perspective then for for investors out there, particularly for emerging markets investors. What do you think would be the best way to play the China recovery trade or the China coming back online trade? So there are two ways to approach. Uh, I think the China recovery trade. Um, you know, first, uh, you know, through uh, Chinese assets, and then through you know, kind of like Chinese uh, proxy assets. Right. <clears throat> so focusing on China first. Um, you know, we've already seen of equities. Um, you know, massively rally um, and uh, and fade. You know, much of the decline that we saw. You know, all through last year. Um, you know, we think that um, you know rally. You know, is is, is probably already losing some momentum. Um, you know, personally, uh, you know, we prefer to be paid, uh, you know, Chinese rates, uh, which we think will rise gradually over the course, uh, you know, of this year. In contrast with most everywhere else, where you know we're seeing, uh, um, uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, yields come down as as growth is slowing down. Um, the PBOC, you know, we think is going to retain an easing bias in the short term. You know, given that you know China's growth is still weak and inflation is still very, very low, right? Uh, but is probably going to, you know, start moving towards a more neutral stance, you know, once uh, uh, post-recovery local demand, you know, recovers and credit growth rebounds a little bit more materially, which, you know, we think in turn should push inflationary pressures uh, higher. Um, at the same time, um, you know, uh, an expansionary fiscal policy is probably going to result in, you know, we think very heavy supply, uh, while demand for bonds from banks and asset managers is probably going to weaken as long growth recovers. Uh, and they move assets, uh, you know, away from bonds, which of course were uh, a very favored asset in China through last year, uh, towards equities. All of which, again, you know, we think should contribute. I mean, to that rate payer trade. Um, we're not that keen on, um, um, you know, CNY uh, as uh, uh, as uh, as a means of expressing this China recovery trade. I mean, given that number one, it's already strengthened a lot, and uh, you know, number two. Um, you know, and given that China's record trade surplus is likely to come down, you know, over the course of this year, I mean, that should, uh, um, you know, Keteris Paribus, um, you know, arrest, I think, any significant further appreciation pressures. Um, uh, and away from China, uh, you know, we like, um, uh, you know, long, uh, you know, currencies, uh, you know, of countries that are, you know, direct beneficiaries, right? I mean, to China's reopening trade, uh, you know, the Taibat, of course, you know, has already appreciated meaningfully. Uh, you know, since uh, you know China's reopening in in November December, um, uh, you know, front loading, uh, you know, the arrival of Chinese tourists that are expected over the course of the next uh, several months. I mean, but um, um, I would say you know Asian you know currencies uh, you know writ large, right? I mean, uh, you know, should continue to uh, uh, benefit from uh, this overall trend. And of course, uh, you know, oil um, you know continues to be. Uh, you know, I think an asset um, that should be directly favored by China. What we find interesting is that what we have seen actually since November is a massive increase in base metal prices. Um, you know, whereas oil, you know, has actually struggled, you know, to to recover, let alone keep pace. Um, we think we should actually see a reversal, uh, you know, of that trend. Um, 
uh, since uh, China is going to be relying much less on infrastructure investment uh, and is going to be you know relying much more on uh, you know consumption and a resumption of international travel, which should you know increase overall oil demand uh, and we think uh, you know should push oil higher and allow it to outperform uh, over the rest of this year. Great, thank you, Patrick. And I guess just to be able to close out here. You painted a reasonably positive picture for the Chinese economy and China for the next few quarters. But, you know, we hear a lot about near sourcing. You know, is this consumption recovery? Is that just a sugar rush, as you alerted to earlier? Um, you know, China's uh, demographics in terms of low birth rates and India surpassing their competitive advantages on on producing goods. How when is it time to 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 start to reevaluate China's prospects long term? So unfortunately, you know, while you know we're optimistic about China's recovery this year, uh, and we think that that recovery is actually going to be more front-loaded than people are expecting, uh, it's hard to uh, be anything other than structurally bearish China long-term, right? For a number of reasons. First and foremost, um, as much as the Chinese leadership is trying to arrest the bleeding uh, in the housing market. Um, you know, the housing market, uh, which uh, in years past has represented up to a quarter of China's GDP, is still in the middle of a fundamental adjustment, right? Uh, China is likely to um, build around half of the level of annual housing in the next decade relative to the previous 10 years, right? Uh, and about one-third of the industry's peak in 2021. Uh, it's hard to see China... Um, you know, being able to sustain you know growth rates uh, in excess of five percent, let alone closer to the six, seven, eight percent we have seen in years past, uh, if the you know property sector I mean continues to be you know an overall drag. Um, second of all, um, you know China's reform progress during you know President Xi's first two terms, you know, has been very lackluster. Right? Innovation policy has been looking inward. Uh, reforms to develop its financial system and boost market competitiveness. You know, have also stalled its openness to both portfolio and direct investment has in fact been decreasing over the course of the last couple of years. Um, and um, as we saw through much of 2020 and 2021, you know, whenever the Chinese leadership uh, identifies any imbalances, I mean, they typically resort to status policies, right? I mean, and uh, dramatic regulatory changes, uh, you know, which I think will give people pause, right? I mean, when it comes to uh, investing in China in the future. I mean, particularly um, as far as foreign direct investment is concerned. Well, thank you, Patrick. Thank you for the thoughts on China. Any final comments or summary in terms of you want to add? Or I think that covers it. All right. Well, um, thank you all for joining us on this version of MSO Talks, our podcast. Uh, I'm Don Licardi, and uh, thank you again, Patrick Estorellis, our head of research. Thank you, Don.